Thank you. The little device I have in my hand is a digital voice recorder because I've been asked to make a podcast of what I'm talking about, so I hope this works. Um, just for the podcast, I will say that I'm speaking to Los Pajarinos in San Antonio, August 5th, 2006, at the Central Library in San Antonio. So anybody listening now knows what's going on. I want to thank Santiago for inviting me here, and especially whoever made the breakfast tacos. They were yummy. Uh, <laughs> one reason I always love coming to San Antonio is the food, because um, we have Tex-Mex food in Amarillo and Canyon, but it's just not the same. So every time I come to San Antonio, I put on a few pounds, and you can tell I've been coming here for a while. Um, what I'm going to talk about today, I have three different topics I wanted to talk about. The first is the book. Um, that's why I was invited here, because I have written this book. It's called Hers, His, and Theirs, Community Property Law in Spain and Early Texas. And what the book does is look at the creation of community property law, which took place in medieval Spain um, as the, the Spanish Christians retook the Iberian Peninsula from the Moors in this centuries-long process called the Reconquest new laws developed. And the reason these laws developed concerning women was because to the Spanish, women held the community. Women were the ones who taught the children how to behave, what was proper, what society was supposed to be. And so as this frontier moved southward over these uh, centuries, the Spanish had to convince respectable women to go live on the frontier. And the way they did that was by giving them more and more rights. Especially married women got more rights to own land in their own name, to operate businesses in their own name, and so forth. And this was all a part of the push of settling, colonizing, Christianizing, uh, socializing uh, the Iberian Peninsula. And the process took, again, a very long time. It had just been completed in 1492, in January of 1492. So guess what the Spanish monarchs did next? They talked to this guy named Christopher something or other and uh, sent him away on three ships. And so these laws that had been developed over the centuries were taken to the New World with the Spanish Empire. And in the Spanish Empire, of course, as it spread northward from Mexico into Texas, these laws went with them. And they didn't change. They didn't need to change because they had already been perfected in a conquest situation. So when the Spanish came to San Antonio and settled San Antonio, uh, the laws were here. Everybody knew their rights. Everybody knew the law. And so San Antonio took a very important place in the history of the Spanish law because the people who lived in San Antonio, law abiding isn't exactly the right word because some of them did kind of fudge a little, but law respecting, I think, would be much a better uh, attitude. In, in such great contrast to the way the English colonists were settling things on the Atlantic coast in their colonies, either by you know fighting with their hands or going and taking somebody and hanging them up on a tree, um, the Spanish would take people to court, a much more civilized approach. And they kept records of what they did. They were very conscious of doing things the right way. And so from San Antonio, of course, we have the Bear Archives, which now any historian anywhere can take a look at because they've been microfilmed. And it's a wonderful way of showing people just how important San Antonio was uh, in the Spanish Empire. Um, 
Frank Galtejo wrote a book uh, the, about the history of San Antonio. Well, he also wrote a textbook for college uh, Texas history classes, and it's called Texas Crossroads of Empire, because this is where the Spanish Empire collided with the English Empire and the French Empire and so forth. But San Antonio was the crux of all that. San Antonio was the true crossroads of empire because they got everybody coming through San Antonio, and we have records of it. And so this is what my book talks about, are the, the things that happened in San Antonio that perpetuated the Spanish law. And then even as the Anglos come in and didn't respect anything else, they did use the Spanish laws for married women's property rights and things like adoption. Uh, the English people had no idea what adoption was. And so they used uh, the Spanish adoption, which is what we use today. So the Spanish laws were very important in early Texas. And most people just have no idea that community property is Spanish. Um, most of the time, of course, the only time people come into contact with the idea of community property is either during a divorce or uh, because somebody died and you have to split up the property. Uh, so mostly lawyers uh, know about community property. But it continues. And I know when I was in law school, uh, I am, I must admit, my name is Jean, I am a recovering attorney. Um, <laughs> when I was in law school, they taught us community property, but they never told us where it came from. And how can you know why something is the way it is if you don't know where it came from? Uh, so that's why I want people to read the book, just so they know that Spanish law came to Texas and from Texas spread out across the United States, and it's very important. Uh, the, the Hispanic heritage is so much stronger than most people know, certainly more than what they get taught in schools nowadays. I know because I teach, I'm a professor. Uh, so uh, this is this is something I fight against every day, is this Anglo-centric that uh, Santiago was saying, uh, that Turner's thesis, white men did everything. Um, well, the, in that case, I want to know where all the babies came from. <laughs> so again, as he said, the trend is now toward looking at everybody else. Where the white men have been studied long enough, it's time to look at, at the other people, the other gender, uh, and see what their contributions were. So that's what the book is about. Um, Okay, so that segues into my last topic I want to talk about, which is where I'm going to spend the most time. And that is the teaching of history. All of you here are interested in history, right? Um, this is something that either you love it or you just want to run away from it screaming. And uh, most of my students are the ones who want to run away um, because they've always been taught history by coaches. And if any of you are coaches, I apologize. Um, I had coaches as high school and junior high history teachers, so I survived. But coaches want to coach, most of them. Uh, they really don't want to spend time on history, and so they do the memorize the dates and memorize these names, and here's the workbook. And it's boring. To me, history is not boring. History is stories of people and how they did things and why they did things and who they loved and who they hated and who they had fights with and who won and why. And it's just, it's so interesting. And so when I teach history, this is the first hurdle that I have to overcome. And probably some of y'all face this too when you try to explain to your friends why you're in this group. Y'all do what? You don't just go to the movies all the time? You're interested in things that engage the brain? How unusual. So uh, that's one hurdle that we face in uh, talking about history. 
Another thing that I do for my students and anybody else who will sit still long enough is tell them that they were lied to when they were educated in the primary and secondary schools. Um, out and out lied to. A lot of the things that are taught in today's schools are just not true. Um, one of the, I'll just use an example of Christopher Columbus. Christopher Columbus discovered the United States, right? No, he never set foot in what's going to become the United States, and it wasn't the United States then anyway. That was hundreds of years later. Okay, um, Christopher Columbus called the people he found in America Indians because he thought he was in India. Y'all have heard that? Wrong. Absolutely. Not only not true, but not possible. Christopher Columbus was not speaking English. Indian is an English word. The word that Christopher Columbus used to describe the people that he found were Indios. He found them living in the Caribbean islands. That's where he landed. And he called them Indios because they lived on the Indies, the islands of the Caribbean. So he called them an accurate name. The Spanish then kept this name and used it to apply to all of the native peoples and how the Comanche Indians, for example, can be referred to as people of the islands, I'm not sure, but this does make Spanish record keeping much more consistent and that they always said Indios. So Christopher Columbus never called anybody an Indian and he never thought he was an Indian. If you read his letters, which apparently most historians don't, he thought he was in Japan all through this. He said, well, we're going to go northward on the next journey, and we're going to find Japan. I'm sure we're just close to it somewhere. Uh, we're in Japan. We're, we're at the outlying islands of Japan. He was certain of it. Uh, so he, was, he knew he was nowhere near India, and uh, so he, he did not think that. And the reason it was impossible for him to think that was that there was no India then. The nation or territory that became known as India, that was called that by British people. Uh, Christopher Columbus's time, before the British Empire got started, it was called Hindustan, like Pakistan, Afghanistan, all those places. It meant the place where the Hindus live. It was not one country. It was a lot of kingdoms. It was not India. So Christopher Columbus never called anybody an Indian, did not think he was an India, and India didn't even exist. So why is every single person in the United States told this lie? Because it seems to make sense. Because the Anglo historians like Turner, um, who were writing histories in the 1800s, said, Indians, well, he must have thought he was an Indian. We know he was lost. So that just makes sense. So that's what we're going to write. We're not going to bother to go look and find out the real truth, because then we'd have to learn to read Spanish, and we're too Anglo-centric to do that. And so once the first historians wrote that, they got so respected and everything uh, that everybody just copied it down and said, well, it must be true that they said so. And so forever and ever, this lie keeps getting spread, that Christopher Columbus called people Indians because he thought he was an Indian. The significance of this lie is overwhelming when you talk about history. Uh, we have had so many generations of Americans brought up thinking that only 
the English side of colonization and settling and civilization and socializing is important, that this inculcates prejudice in Americans. That if you're not descended from the pilgrims and the Puritans, then you're not important. Which of course is not true. But that's the effect of having this Anglo-only, English-only uh, history. When they only teach the, the Atlantic colonies, right? They teach about Virginia. They, of course, teach about Massachusetts because the earliest historians were all educated in Massachusetts. And that's why we know about the pilgrims. The pilgrims only lasted uh, about 20 years. Not very important in the, the larger scheme of things. They're a bunch of radicals. Nobody else wanted anything to do with them. They couldn't get any other people to come to their colony because they were so weird. That's why they died out. Um, and yet we hear about them because they happened to live in Massachusetts. They were blown off course. And the Massachusetts historians told us all about them. Told us about this great feast they had once a year, which was the first Thanksgiving. Again, <laughs> no. Um, the Spanish were holding Thanksgiving celebrations, harvest feasts in St. Augustine, in Santa Fe, in lots of places in what is now the United States before 1620s. And the Native Americans held harvest celebrations too, before that. So the reason that we know about the pilgrims, again, is because of the bias of the Massachusetts historians. As a Texas historian, I'm all about kicking their anatomies. So um, one of the reasons that I like talking to groups like yours is because you can be a focus for making people more aware of things. You can go you know, to your next meeting, whatever you go to, talk to your friends, talk to your neighbors. Hey, did you know that Columbus never told, called anybody an Indian and explain it to them and maybe undo a little of the, the prejudice? Um, so that's why I like telling that story, because everybody knows the Columbus story, right? And once you prove that was a lie, then people's minds start to open to think, well, you know, maybe some of the other things they told me in school weren't true either. Like the pilgrims having the first Thanksgiving. And personally, I don't see how they can really have a Thanksgiving unless the Dallas Cowboys are playing, but uh, <laughs> that's just me. Okay, um, Santiago wanted me to leave time at the end for y'all to ask questions. So does anybody have any questions? And I have no privilege. Uh, could you explain the purpose or the rule of a dowry, please? Okay. Um, in Spanish or English law? In Spanish law. A dowry was what um, the woman... Okay, wait. Spanish law. A dowry is what the man paid to the woman's family for the privilege of marrying that woman. So he was buying her, basically. Uh, it was a contract, a business deal between two families, and you put down the dowry um, so that you knew you were sincere about it. You know, that you were a man of worth, you could afford to, uh, to, to carry out this marriage and to support the family that was sure to come. But the dowry often remained the woman's own separate property. Uh, the man could not spend it unless she agreed to it. Um, and if he did try to spend it, she could go to court and make him stop. Uh, the dowry stayed with the woman and gave her a pocketbook, um, gave her some independence. Um, 
a lot of people who aren't Hispanic think that Hispanic women are just tremendously overwhelmed by their husbands. Uh, they have this idea that machismo is so vicious, I guess, that the women just sort of cower in the kitchen and never come out. Now, that's just not true of all the Hispanic women I've met. Um, their husbands say, yes, dear, quite a bit. Um, and the dower is one of the traditions from the medieval times uh, that let women stand up to their husbands because they had that money of their own. They had their own integrity, their own legal personhood, and the dowry gave them that. That was a very good question. And how's that in comparison to English? Now, you think that's not much you get off? <laughs> in the English law, the dowry was more of a, a sale price that went to the bride's family. Uh, her parents then owned the dowry, and she had nothing. Uh, under English law, when a woman got married, she legally disappeared. Uh, she could not make a contract. She could not appear in court even as a witness. She could not um, sue anybody because she had no legal existence. She could not make a will because she didn't own anything. Everything belonged to her husband. And we have wills that um, the husbands wrote saying where the wife's clothing would go because she didn't own it. He did. She owned nothing. She was nothing, uh, literally. So, under English law, <laughs> women dispute. Yes, ma'am. I have a question. And tell us about voting rights for women, because I know that the Spanish women have voting rights. How did it come about before this? Okay, the, the question was about voting rights for women uh, before the 19th Amendment. Voting was different under Spanish Kingdom Empire laws than it is today. And women, if they own land, could sometimes vote. Um, it depended a lot more on status than on gender. If a widow, for example, owned a lot of land, uh, she could vote. She could say who was going to be on the council. Uh, now, the voting was only for the local offices because the higher-up offices were usually sold. But women were much, much more equal legally under the Spanish law. Yes, ma'am. That's a good question, too. Yes, sir. How much of a connection was there between San Antonio and uh, Saltillo? as far as laws and things like that were concerned Okay. The question is about the connection between San Antonio and Saltillo uh, legally. And the big problem is distance. Um, a lot of people who lived in San Antonio had to transact business in Saltillo because it was a much bigger city. And they would have to grant a power of attorney to somebody who lived in Saltillo because it just took so long uh, and was so dangerous uh, to, uh, to go from one to the other. So the laws were the same. And in fact, we have a lot of examples of people living in San Antonio appointing a power of attorney to someone in Saltillo to do their business for them. And some of these were women. Uh, one of my favorite documents in the Bear Archives is where a woman, a married woman, is giving a power of attorney to a man. And in this document, she says she's doing it because the first guy she appointed didn't do it right. <laughs> And so she's appointing this other man in Saltillo to transact her business for her. Uh, under English law, that just couldn't happen. Uh, the woman would not have the right to give somebody else the power of attorney to do anything because she had no rights at all. But the laws were the same. Uh, they tended to be enforced a little less stringently in San Antonio. Criminal laws were enforced. Um, what we call today torts or civil offenses uh, where you sue each other. 
In San Antonio, that tended to be settled rather amicably. Everybody would go before the judge and give their depositions, their statements, and so forth. And the judge would make a decision. And usually the consequences would be that whichever party was found to be wrong, and sometimes it was both, would have to go spend time building public buildings. Uh, very different from the, again, from the English system where you'd be put in jail or something. Uh, the purpose of all the laws in the Spanish system was to promote the whole community. And that, that's a, a wonderful thing. Yes, ma'am? How did the Spanish laws impact men from the United States who were coming to Texas to escape Yes. <laughs> That's a wonderful question. The question is, how did the Spanish laws affect the men who came to Texas to get away from all the things they owed, all their debts in the United States? And the answer is, that's why they adopted the community property law when Texas became a state. You can read the minutes of this uh, constitutional hearing in 1845 when all these big men are sitting around going, oh my God, if we become part of the United States, all those banks are going to come collect. And all we have here is land, and they're going to take our land away from us, and we don't want to let that happen. How can we stop this? And one of the men uh, who's going to become Chief Justice of the Texas State Supreme Court, Ken Hill, said, well, I've been studying Spanish law, and they have this thing called community property where the women own half of what it is. So if we let the women keep half of the property, then your creditors can't come take it because it belongs to her. <laughs> and so that's why they adopted it. Um, so the property laws stayed the same, even though Texas changed from being Spanish to Mexican to a nation to a state. Who owned the property stayed the same through all of that. So, and property rights stayed the same, and water law rights stayed the same, uh, no matter supposedly uh, which nation is in control. Which makes it very interesting, if you have an original Spanish land grant, your water rights are different than if it was a Texas Republic or a United States land grant. Um, so, if you ever want to go completely crazy, study water law. <laughs> yes, sir. In your uh, bibliography, you start, you start this bibliography by writing five copies. Now, what is the reason between, you know, this is the first time that I see a book that says archives, and do you want the reader to say, this are the places I must go, or this are the places that you need to go. And then you also break it down from primary sources to secondary sources. And how do you explain uh, papers, notes? Okay, you're asking about the business of being a historian. And one of the things we do as historians is tell people how to replicate our research. We're saying, I didn't make this up. This is real. Here are the places I went to. You can go look there yourself and find out the same things that I found out. Um, it's like swearing on a Bible, you know, that this is true. And you put the archives first because to historians, archives are the essential. These are not published. These are the papers, the documents of all sorts that you can lay your hands on and say, you know, somebody wrote this letter and it was in his hands. 
And so these are the things that are most essential to the study of history. That's why that comes first. And then the more primary sources you use, whether they are archival or published, gives you more credence among historians, um, that you actually went and did the research. You didn't just read what other people said and accepted it. Uh, you went, you looked, you read uh, the, the letters, the documents, the court cases yourself. And so this gives you status among historians. Because really, usually only historians read a bibliography. Are you a, are you a historian? Yes. Uh-huh, see? <laughs> so did that answer your question? Yes. It was a trick question. You knew the answer. Yes, sir? Have you come across cases where the archives do not match what has become family knowledge? Uh, <laughs> uh, the question is, does sometimes the, the proof in the, the papers not agree with what family say, yes. Um, a friend of mine, who I'm not going to mention his name, just did a little family genealogy, went on a research trip throughout the country visiting all of his relatives that he had never met and so forth. And he found out that his grandfather was the result of an incestuous union. Is this something that came down in family lore? No, he had no idea. He had no idea. Um, so yes, you find out all sorts of things. With reference to land? Uh, with reference to land, you mean like who owns what piece of land? Yeah, and uh, land grants, Spanish land grants, for example. <clears throat> I'm trying to think of any specific. That would be family owned. You couldn't separate it. Yeah, it, it, especially with the Spanish system of everybody getting equal parts, it can get really complicated because you can have uh, you know 14 different cousins owning one acre of land. And so sometimes they would settle things out of court, and so the, what they did is not always reflected in the court in the records that we have. Um, you know, everybody else agrees to buy out Bubba and, and so forth. But yeah, it, and as far as legal title to things, usually it matches. Usually it matches. Land is too important to fiddle with. Yes, sir. Did you find any examples of, especially in the Mexican period, of, of men and women who? were in effect had common law marriages. We had children, we had a relationship, but for some reason or another uh, did not uh, marry within the church. Uh, the question is about common law marriages during the Mexican period, and they were everywhere. And the reason they were everywhere was there were no priests. Um, there was one priest who made two trips to Texas uh, during the entire Mexican period, and his name was Muldoon, Father Muldoon. He was an Irishman who had moved to New Spain so that he could, you know, not be close to the English. And he was the only priest who could be convinced to go into the wilderness and perform marriages. And so what people would do was, was called marriage by bond. They would promise, you know, and put down their, their name and, and promise to pay money if they didn't do it, to get married as soon as a priest came to town. And the wording of these bonds is the same as a, as a marriage ceremony. And they would uh, solemnly swear to get married until death do us part and all of that. And whenever Father Muldoon showed up, he would do a string of weddings and baptisms of all the children that had been born to that marriage. Yes? Mexicans worried about this a lot more than Anglos did um, because there was no priest. Uh, even in San Antonio, there were, there were not priests for a long time. So they did what they could. And as soon as a priest would come to town and Father Muldoon spoke Spanish, he could come and, and do their marriages too. But again, he was the only one uh, for a long, long time. So yes, they worried about that excessively, whether their children were uh, legitimate, whether they were actually married. 
Yes, ma'am, you were next. I thought there were priests at the different missions. Yes, but the missions were secularized in the 1700s and the priests left. Talking about the missions. Oh, yeah. Were the bombs recognized as legal parents' saying as if you were married by priests? Yes, once there was the Texas Republic government set up, one of the first things they did was to say any marriage of any kind that somebody thinks they're married to is legitimate. Yes, I think you were next. Well, yeah, well, it's along the same lines. Okay. So you're, you're saying these uh, promises that they made, it's actually the beginning of what we call civil marriages? Well, <laughs> common law yeah. marriage was an Anglo tradition for a long time. Um, again, the Hispanic people tended to be more law-abiding and get married in a church, because under Catholic dogma or canon, I guess, the only a marriage in a church by a priest counts. Again, the Anglos were much more casual about it, and especially on the frontier, you would find just lots of people common-law married. And in fact, I tell a lot of my friends who are living together, they better be careful, or they're going to wind up married and they don't know it. Okay, I think he's next. Okay, the requirements for adoption in the Spanish is mostly just saying so. Um, this, this person is my son now. The and, the yes, and uh, you'd go through a ceremony and you'd get the, the godparents uh, and you'd have it in the church and you would say, this person is my child now. And usually sons were adopted to people who had no sons, that she, so they would have an heir. And that was the purpose of the adoption, was to have an heir. It was very simple, very simple to do. Um, I think he was next. I'm interested uh, in hearing what you feel about uh, Dr. Howard Zinn's uh, People's History of the United States. I have not read that uh, that book. He tends to focus on uh, the people who lost the wars, the women, the uh, the minorities. Uh, okay, so the the winner writes history. He's looking at the other yeah. side. And everything else. Yeah. That's a good thing to do. <laughs> the lost <laughs> cause. <laughs> <laughs> How about uh, mass? Uh, are you considered a radical uh, among your peers at uh, Texas Tech and elsewhere here in Texas? Oh, no. No, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very careful to be nice to everybody. <laughs> you, don't know, you don't know West Texas women. <laughs> My mama raised me right. Um, okay, I think you're next. I'm just starting at this, and I would like help. I'm trying to translate... 1813 wills, and I run into walls, but I don't understand the terminology. Is there a book or something I can go to? Oh, no. <laughs> um, it's mostly the legal terms that are going to be throwing you, and just realize that most wills start out, I'm leaving so many mails to the church for, you know, such and such for captives or whatever. I'm leaving such and such to somebody. So somebody owes me this many chickens. Um, and, and so once you get the, it's the legal terminology probably that's getting you down. And if you could just get a dictionary for the legal terms. Except that I, oh, okay. And Spanish. Yeah. And there are some glossaries. I believe the Hellenians uh, have published glossaries in the register. Uh, the and Black Issues. And we have them at the Casa Navarro, which is open on Saturday mornings between 10 and 12, everybody's welcome. Come there, and we have some back issues of the register. And some of these have glossaries, and they have Spanish terms in there. Like somebody talked the other day said, Patron, Pardonis. Uh, and I didn't understand what it was, and someone told me it's a census. And I was thinking it was something totally different. So, yeah, there, there are glossaries. And uh, I was going to see if you have one in here that you don't need. 
I don't think so. Um, okay. Why might somebody appoint a guardian in court as to a child? Guardians were appointed to protect a child's property rights. Um, this is much more frequently done under English law than under Spanish law because under English law they didn't have adoption. Under Spanish law, somebody would just adopt the child and it would become part of their family. So, in a, in a, you know, on a land dispute kind of thing, I wondered who the guardian might be in relationship. Sometimes the guardian would be a member of the family, sometimes not. If, if the family was fighting over an inheritance, then somebody outside the family would be appointed because they would be assumed to have no interest, no vested interest in the outcome and would only protect the child. That's why we have child advocates today, so somebody protects the child's interest instead of just the parents. Okay, somebody back here. Yes, sir. You know, um, when we have this invasion of, uh, of Anglo-Saxons coming in, and then they started the courthouse systems, the people then were Anglo-Saxon controlling and unloading the land. Wouldn't it be behoove the Anglo-Saxon legislators to ignore Spanish land so that you can grab it faster and easier. Okay, the question is why did Anglo lawmakers respect Spanish laws when they could just go out and grab it all? And the answer is they wanted to keep it away from their own creditors. So many of the men who were running Texas were running away from debts in Georgia and South Carolina and so forth. And they did not want to lose their own land. And the only way they could figure out how to keep it was to give it to their wives. And so that's the only reason that they adopted this. Otherwise, as you say, they just went out and took land from everybody. Yes, ma'am. Can you also do with the attempts and the idea that, well, if you won't sell your land, you can do your will will? There was that, yes. Uh, or we'll just run you off so that you abandon your land and it's up for grabs and whichever one of us moves into your nice house first gets it. Yeah. Uh, there was so much violence in South Texas. I don't need to tell you all that. Next question. Yes, sir. Well, about the, uh, just taking a look at the land, uh, you know, besides the community property, which is really good, these land, 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 land grants in Mexico have been sold, divided, subdivided, so they invalidate them, would create, would cloud the titles of half the land with half the people in Texas. Right. Um, and the whole purpose of the English Anglo legal system was to clarify and protect property rights. That's why all the property belonged to the husband, was to make sure everybody knew who owned what. Um, as opposed to the Spanish legal system, which wants the community to prosper. So the, the Anglo system was based on individual male property rights. So they did not want to disturb that. And they were mostly, they called themselves lawyers uh, who were in the legislature, which meant they had spent some time in a lawyer's office uh, reading the law, mostly drinking from what I can see. Yes, ma'am. They could forge a deed, they could forge a land grant, they could just say, you know, it's mine and start paying taxes on it. Bill of sale? Yeah, just write out a bill of sale and sign whoever's name. Isn't that the case over South Texas? In a lot of places. Yeah. yeah, and especially where there was a huge majority of Anglos, they would not allow Hispanics into court to testify that it was in fact their land. Yes. Yeah, just shoot them. That's the easiest way to get land, right? Just shoot them. 
No. Okay. What would you say is the impact on the present day uh, of the feudal laws or the laws Okay, the impact today of the, the Spanish laws. Well, community property, if any of you have to go through a divorce, you'll find out all about community property. Or if someone in your family dies without leaving a will, you will find out all about community property. If you know anybody who is adopted, that law, uh, that custom, tradition, whatever you want to call it, came about during the Spanish Reconquest. Because so many fathers were getting killed in the wars that their children had to be adopted by somebody. Um, and uh, homestead exemption uh, that used to be the law here in Texas that they could not come take away your home just because you owe debts. That's Spanish. That came from the Reconquest. Because what sense does it make to put someone in jail for debt and they can't get out and earn what they owe? You know, the Spanish in a lot of ways were much more logical than the English. The English just wanted their money and didn't care how they got it. So yes, very much we are influenced today, especially in Texas and other community property states. Uh, without even knowing it. Anybody else? All right, I want to thank you all. These are very good questions. It's nice to talk to an audience who knows what they're asking about. Uh, so thank you very much. Oh, Dr. Stentz will be, of course, uh, selling and, and signing her book right here uh, after this. And uh, right now, I'd like to present you with this plaque for coming down all the way from the panhandle. Uh, come and speak with us and enlighten us on Spanish property. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.